stars Kevin James. Oh. Basket. The baskets that are going around here, just again to cover the cost and the expense of the class, which aren't uh, too much. But if you would like to contribute, we would appreciate it. Thank you. Good morning. I think you all know that Steve and uh, Edward all and Doug Goins are going to off to Africa. And I did mention that if Steve was taken hostage, we would take a collection and bail him out. I don't know that we could be committed to bailing all three of them out if they were to be taken captive. Uh, I would think $25 per, per person in the local currency would maybe be that reasonable. Here, here's the rest of those flyers on the the, the uh, uh, seminar coming up. Uh, James chapter 5 today. Next week, God willing, uh, should the Lord tarry, let's do the little book of Philemon. It's an incredibly fine little book. And then uh, the, the suggestion is that for the five Sundays in uh, December, we go through Micah. Would that be all right? Uh, so you can read ahead on Micah. Uh, we have... Uh, Professor Anaker is standing by to get help us with the Greek in chapter 5 of James. Okay, let's go. James chapter 5. The first six verses do not have the word brother associated with them. Very often, uh, James uses the word brothers, brethren, brothers and sisters, or fellow Christians, with what that means, because he's very specifically talking to uh, his fellow Christians in Jerusalem, where he's the pastor. Uh, in this case today, he lets out a great big uh, uh, message uh, uh, concerning social injustice. And uh, uh, I've been thinking this week, if we could just get a little billboard space or a little radio space and put these uh, six verses out uh, in Silicon Valley... Uh, and just say uh, the, the following message from uh, James, the brother of Jesus, to uh, the, the rich and famous in Silicon Valley. This is kind of, that's the sort of what James is doing here. And this is in keeping with the style that we see in the prophets of the Old Testament, very often uh, 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 lashing out at social injustice. In this case, he's after the selfishly rich of the world who have, exploited everybody to get to where they are, and it's a, so that's what this is about. As we've already seen James deal with the issue of rich versus poor, particularly in the church, and in the Christian church we don't make distinctions between rich and poor. We don't take the rich, well-known Christian and set him in the front row and take the the homeless Christian and put him in the back row. We don't do that. We treat one another as equals. In the family of God, we're all equals, and there are wealthy Christians who uh, are generous and kind and godly, and then there are poor Christians who are kind and generous and godly. In fact, uh, James has already told us that God has chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him. So, uh, in general, poor people find it easier to trust God. They find they need God more readily. They don't have a bank account to bail them out. Uh, they're going to uh, get in the habit of crying out to God and not rely on their credit cards and bank accounts. So the poor, in that sense, have an advantage uh, in in a way uh, that maybe a, a rich person does not. And uh, in the Gospels, we find Jesus very often talking to poor people. Now, this is a, 
James wants to tell us about the culture that we live in and the fact that it's full of rich people who've gotten incredibly rich, usually at the expense of the people who work for them. Here he says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Strong warning. The word uh, howl here is a strong word in Greek. It means to shriek or wail in terror. Uh, if you guys knew what was going to come down upon you, you'd be scared out of your wits. You would, you will scream in absolute terror. Uh, come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. That is, the day of judgment's coming. Uh, God has been silent for a long time, but he's going to get around and judge the world, and he's going to target the selfishly rich, especially, according to James here. Your riches are corrupted, and your garments are moth-eaten. The word here for corrupted is the word for, gives us our English word septic, or sepsis, and the Greek word means rotten. How can riches rot on you? Well, usually when you buy very fine things, marble, gold, silver, platinum, they usually don't rot. They usually don't corrode. So here's the language that the most uh, priceless, uh, long-lasting objects in this world can rot, as far as God's concerned, can rot away uh, and fall off. Your, your riches are corrupted. Your garments are moth-eaten. Here, how would you like to have a splendid wardrobe of thousands of dollars worth of suits and gowns and clothes, and you open up the closet, and it's all moth-eaten? In spite of everything, it's all of those thousands of dollars worth of clothes are all full of moth holes. That used to be more common when I was a boy, I think, growing up. That I don't know whether we have moths around here or not. Anybody had any moth problems lately? Probably not here in this group of ordinary poor people here that we have. So, uh, so uh, James is saying that the, the, the wealth in this world is perishable, it's short-lasting, and it won't buy you any favor with God at all, and you're going to lose it all. It's going to rot away and rust away on you. Your gold and silver have corroded, and, uh, and that the, the Greek means thoroughly corroded. Now, gold and silver uh, don't corrode. They're, that's why we make them into fine jewelry, and we, we gold plate our electronic circuits is because they're corrosion proof. Well, here he says, Gold and silver and platinum and precious metals will corrode away as if they were made out of cheap iron. And if you've seen corroded metal, corroded aluminum, corroded tin or iron, you know it just turns into a very ugly lump of useless metal. Doesn't even look like metal anymore. And he says, your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You've heaped up treasure in the last days. Imagine showing up to God, uh, showing up at, at the judgment of God with a big table with all your riches laid out on it, thinking that you got a lot of gold and silver to show for your life work, and you're going to show God how much you've done. And, it, and you look over on the table, and it's all turned into this pile of rusted junk. <laughs> That's the language of James. Uh, in the light of eternity, things in this world are all too perishable, even the most precious things. Even the most valuable things have no eternal lasting value. Now, uh, uh, you have heaped up treasure in the last days, or you've heaped up treasure for the last days. You have been accumulating all this wealth, and it's going to be a judgment against you in the last days. And why? Why? Because 
you pursued this wealth by selfish means. Because instead of being concerned about others, uh, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Instead of being concerned about the poor, you spent your whole lifetime accumulating money to make yourself rich, famous, and successful. A lot of people like that in Silicon Valley. Lots and lots of people in Silicon Valley. And he says, uh, indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out, and the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of, Lord of angelic armies. Now, in the Middle East, in those days, every Jewish person had a small piece of property that was to remain their property forever if you... Uh, got in debt, you might want to rent out the property for a while, but it had to come back to you eventually. In the Jubilee's years, it had to be returned to you. Uh, it was not kosher. It wasn't legal for a rich man to buy up a bunch of his neighboring farmers who were poorer and have one great big giant farm and then rehire the, the original owners to be tenant farmers for you and, to, and give them just a pittance of what they really were worth to underpay them. I think in today's world, we don't necessarily have so much uh, exploitation of people in coal mines and factories. And you go back 100, 200 years ago at, uh, in England and the U.S., where children were put to work at 12 or 13, and in the, in the textile mills and in the coal mines, uh, child labor and labor at, at, at very low rates was very common. And who is getting incredibly rich? at the expense of this cheap labor and know who's concerned about the health of all these people and their families. You have a company town and the company store, so the company owns you. Now, James is talking about the kind of a rich person who's gotten rich by exploiting his workforce ruthlessly, carelessly, inhumanely, and, and building his wealth base up at the expense of others. And now, these individuals who've been cheated out of a good livelihood, who have been underpaid, even though they perhaps are highly skilled, are clamoring for justice before God, and is God going to hear them? He sure is. He's going to listen to their cries for justice and equity and uh, answer them. The wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out, the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of armies, the Lord of angelic armies. So God's been listening to uh, the suffering and the crying of exploited workers. See, almost the case for socialism here. <coughs> almost build up a, a Marxist case here for a socialistic, communistic society to distribute the wealth a little bit, but we won't do that. But you, you get the idea here that that in many, many places in the world, the rich do exploit the poor to this day. Many third world countries have a very rich, elite, small, upper class, and then most everybody's poor. Very common. Okay. If you happen to, maybe maybe you're all your life long, you're forced to work for minimum wages, and there's no way to get out of your situation ever. And you raise your kids in poverty, and a lot of them die, and there's no medical help. And, but, but suppose you cry out to God for justice and for vengeance. Will he hear you? Yes. God's been listening to all those, all those prayers, and he's been recording them. So that's the idea here. And, and God's now going to listen to the cries of all the oppressed workers in the world. Yeah. Um, probably a lot of people remember Jack Bradley. Yes. 
Thank you. That's really very good because we've had examples of Christian individuals and of companies that have put the welfare of their employees uh, way up high on the ladder and maybe turned the company into a cooperative or into profit sharing. Because of the Bible, and these would be, as she pointed out, a Quaker uh, group. And uh, that's a whole different situation. We're not talking about that sort of a situation where everybody gets together and works and there's a lot of profit sharing. I think in Silicon Valley we have a reasonably good, I don't know, some of you come after me and tell me that your boss is a jerk, that would be all right. <laughs> um, now, in verse 5, James goes back to, to, to indicting the rich man. He says, you have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury, and you have fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter. You're like a great big fat pig ready for the slaughterhouse, you rich man. <laughs> With your Bentley or your Mercedes and your big house up in the hills, you're just fattened for slaughter. That's all you are. And the word pleasure here is a word uh, that means wanton luxury. It means... Um, can even mean lewd and lascivious, wild parties, out-of-control living, out-of-control place. Do you need four yachts? Do you need two private airplanes? Do you need six cars? Do you really need all that? Do you need to throw these big parties over at your house that cost $10,000? Do you need that in light of the poverty that's in the area? And the other word here for luxury is a word that means soft living. That means luxury living is soft. So, uh, uh, luxury, along with luxury, goes extra refinement of everything. The softest possible pillows, the nicest possible pile carpets, the most lavish linens on the bed, the, uh, the finest clothing in the closet. That's the idea. The so, it's, all this is, is negative language he's using. Uh, you have condemned, you have murdered the just. He does not resist you. Now, that's a little bit puzzling. Anybody have any idea what that verse means? He says to the rich, you have condemned, you have murdered the just, he does not resist you. Is the just singular? Could be. If he's talking about you have condemned, you have killed the just man, that could be a reference to Jesus? Yes, it could. Did Jesus voluntarily, willingly go to die on behalf of this kind of Corruption, injustice, yes, he did. Uh, the, uh, if you take this word, the, the just, to be a collective group of people, he would be talking about those poor people who know the Lord and are therefore just and righteous and have legitimate needs and demands, which this rich man has exploited. Either way, John, do you have a preference? The group, yeah, okay. I think that would be the usual view that we're talking about, those just people rather than that just man, okay? So so uh, a poor person who has a relationship with Jesus, who cries out to God, is just in the eyes of God, and he deserves justice in the eyes of God eventually, and God's going to defend him in court. That's the idea. And God's going to send his great army in to fix this. Is God going to come in and level our civilization? Yes, he is. Remember Daniel when we talked about the smiting stone that smashes the statue that represents the great civilizations of the world? Is God going to throw down the economic social order of this world and put in a new system? Yep, top to bottom. Are the schools all corrupted? Yes. 
Is the whole system of capitalism corrupted? Yeah. Is there corruption in all throughout every level of our secular world? Yeah. Does it all need turning upside down? Yes. Is God going to do it? He, he is. Okay. Now, that's the end of this of this speech against social injustice in our day, which let's see, see if we can broadcast this to Silicon Valley, just to put people on notice. Not everybody, not any of you, but some of the people next door. <laughs> now, we're going to... We're going to get, at verse 7 now, he's going to talk to us. Because he goes back to the word brothers. Brothers, brethren, brothers and sisters. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, in verse 6 where it talks about the righteous, he's probably talking about the, the brethren there. Because it goes immediately in the next verse. That makes, verse 6 makes a very good transition uh, from... Those people out there that are rich, that don't believe in God, to us who believe in God, who are just, some of us poor. So that does make a good transition. That's good. All right. Now, now he's talking to us who suffer silently and wait for justice in the world. He says, therefore, be patient, brothers, until the coming of the Lord, parousia, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and the latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. That's a great note of hope. And he uses the analogy of the farmer. farmer works long and hard all year long over his crop. He waits for the first rains of springtime to get the crop going, and then the, the latter rains to finish it, and he hopes for, for good growing conditions. And what matters is the harvest, which is a whole long many months away from the planting time. And the farmer is patient and hardworking, so, so endure the difficult situation you're in right now. If you happen to be in a job doesn't pay well and you've got a nasty, mean boss, and that's the only option to, that open to you, stick with it. Hang in there because ultimately God will fix it. That says opposite. That is really great. You see that? God's not going to come and fix things. Uh, He's not in the process of fixing the world right now and making it into a better place to live. He's He's in the process of calling out a group of people to himself, and then he's going to come in and judge the world and vindicate those who have suffered a long time under the repression and oppression of an evil world system. Okay? That's very much anti-prosperity gospel. This is not prosperity gospel at all. So you just be patient with your circumstances as a farmer would. Farmers have good years, bad years. They work long, hard. You might have to worry about fertilizer and you have to worry about pesticides and worry about uh, uh, is the rain normal this year and all that sort of thing causes you farmers to be patient. And we're waiting for the parousia. That's the word for the presence. That's the word for the rapture. That's the word for the the coming of the Lord is that period of time when Jesus comes back to the earth to straighten everything out, that seven-year period. You also be patient. Establish your hearts. And the word there is a good Greek word. It means prop up your hearts. (laughs) I don't know how you prop up your heart, but that's... (laughs) Again, Dr. Anneker probably knows what that word 
means prop up your heart. Yes. Yes. That's good. Remember that we had that other word, endurance, ahead of time, which is the word remaining under hupomene, which means to hang in there through times of stress. And now he does have a different Greek word, which is, this is, John says, the bigger picture. Uh, Therefore, be patient, uh, macrothumia, until the coming of the Lord. Hang in there. We're all in this together. God's going to work it out for all of us, not just for you, but for everybody. Uh, establish your hearts. The coming of the Lord is at hand. There's another statement that the coming of the Lord could be any time now. It's imminent. It could it could be today. It could be next week. It's no further away than the day you die. And I, that for me, that's not an awful long time, I hope. But uh, um, that's what he's after here. I don't mind if we don't share your view on that. <laughs> uh, I don't mind, no. <clears throat> Do not grumble against one another, brothers, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Last week we had this long discussion on not judging other people, not putting people down, and not playing God in the lives of other people. He says it here. He goes, don't run around grumbling against your fellow Christians, being critical, being sarcastic, making their life worse, nitpicking, finding fault, because the judge is right outside the door. And if he was to walk in right now through the door, the judge, Jesus, uh, would he straighten it right out? Uh, What about the person that's grumbling at the moment the door opens and Jesus walks in? Not a good place to be, I would think. Not a good, safe place. Better to be a little bit quiet then. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, lest you be condemned. Because if you're in the situation of grumbling, complaining, putting people down, being critical, being cynical, being sarcastic, you are in trouble with God already. God, so strongly last week we had a good discussion on on the fact that, that God reserves the right to judge people. He's the only one that has all the facts on, on, on people. He knows their whole background. He knows all the mitigating circumstances in somebody's life. He knows your motives. He alone has that, that data, and you don't. Even with somebody you know very, very well, you don't have all the data. And the judgment that, that James dealt with last week so much is the critical judgment. Doesn't mean, it doesn't have to do with evaluating. Uh, uh, because we evaluate our friends in order to help our friends, in order to encourage. We we help our friends overcome flaws and faults because we want them to grow. That's different. Okay? My brothers, verse 10, take the, consider the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. I'm trying to look at my note that I can't read for what the word suffering here is. Uh, John, what is the word suffering here? Okay. My brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of... No, there's two words, suffering and patience. The other word is... Yeah. 
Misery. I think it's the word misery. That's what my scribbled note seems to say. Uh, do, do the prophets put up with a lot of flack, a lot of criticism? Uh, think about uh, Jeremiah getting thrown down in the cistern and Ezekiel enduring all the hostility of the people off in, in uh, Babylon and most of the prophets getting sent to Jerusalem and killed and, and putting up with the king that was constantly antagonistic toward them. A lot of misery, a lot of suffering in the lives of the prophet, not much reward. So if you get discouraged, stop and think about Job and stop and think about Ezekiel and the prophets. Consider them. That ought to boost you because probably none of you have it that bad. Uh, indeed, we count those blessed who endure. Do we not admire, admire endurance and perseverance in other people? Dependability? Yes, we do. It's an admirable trait. We like people that don't buckle, cave in. We, we admire people who are hanging in on, in difficult situations, enduring a lot of pressure. You can say, gosh, I don't know how you do it, but you're managing all this uh, big family and you're managing all this, this difficult situation. How do you do it? And the person says, well, I just have the Lord helping me. That's, we all like that. We all admire that. Indeed, we count those blessed who endure. You've heard of the perseverance of Job. And you've seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. We did Job not too long ago. Was Job uh, patient? No, he wasn't very patient. <laughs> he was feisty and argumentative, and he had all sorts of things to say to everybody about that. Uh, hupomene is the word there. But what did he do? He hung in there through the whole thing. He did not curse God. He did not deny God. And he passed with flying colors at the end of his long trial. Uh, and in the long run, uh, uh, we see at the end of Job, we see that God proved merciful and compassionate. And then we have that word telos in there. The end, the, the purpose of God in Job's life was to expose hidden flaws, to make him into a better man, to, to bless him more than he had been blessed before. If you're going through a really rough time in your life and it doesn't make sense to you, could it be that God wants to bring something good out of it? Yep. Will he bring something good out of it? Yes. Guaranteed. Does it feel good right now? Probably not. Can you hang in there and tough it out because it's the sort of standard thing for all Christians? Yeah, okay. That's what James here wants us to know. That the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. I think that sometimes in a, a person who's patient has given up. Oh, there's no use praying or struggling. I'm defeated. You could, there are people that, that, that take trials and, and give up. But, but perseverance is more this actively praying, working, continuing in your life, serving God, being instant in season and out of season would be what God wants out of you. You're having a terrible day, but you're still serving the Lord. That's the idea. Not quitting, not giving up. And a lot of people do give up under pressure. And that's not... Pressing on. Pre- pressing on, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. Perseverance. He hung in there for the long haul, and it all turned out very wonderful because God accomplished his purpose in Job's life, and he had Job's cooperation in that. So that's right. Okay. No, what about? Well, uh, uh, James is probably the first letter written in the New Testament. Letters of Paul aren't circulating around very much. The Gospels aren't circulating around. A lot of the fundamental issues of the Trinity haven't been thrashed through yet. And so James doesn't, just doesn't particularly, he takes the Holy Spirit for granted, doesn't develop a uh, theology on the Spirit. Long suffering. Yeah. Macrothemia. Oh, excuse me. Okay. Yeah, the hupomeni, the, the, the temporary, uh, short-term, personal a struggle, but the macrothemia, as you say, might be that this is your, your gonna, whole life is you're going to live with a bad back, and, and you're going to live with a low income, and you're going to live in an adverse situation. That's God's calling for you. Maybe you're going to be in jail in Siberia or something. It could change. It could. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think. No, I don't think he uses either of those words here. Long term. We are asking, we do hope and we do anticipate long-term deliverance from our sufferings, trials, pressures, that God will get us to the goal. And he will make us whole men and women and we will pass the test in the long run. Okay. That's it. I like that. If God is not who he says he is, I'm betting on nothing. Are we, are we putting all of our stock in Jesus and his promises? Yes, we are. And the judge is standing at the gates and he's going to come in and fix things. Verse 12. But above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear either by heaven or by the earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, lest you fall into judgment. Now, that is oath-taking. That means uh, uh, what he wants is for you to be a man or a woman of your word, to keep your promises, uh, uh, to 
to be a, a person who is known. Good, uh, that person is as good as gold. His word is as good as gold. He or she does what he s- says he's going to do. This is not a person who says, well, I, I'll, I'll pay you. Uh, when I get the money on Friday, I'll pay you the $100 I owe you. That would be a, an oath or a promise. Don't do that. Don't, don't be iffy, wishy-washy. Be a person of integrity and character. Do what you say you're going to do. That's the idea. Now, rarely we take oaths. You take an oath when you go to court. You better, or else you go to jail if you don't swear to tell the whole truth in court. And when you get married, you should take an oath. Everybody involved should take an oath and get into in the whole picture of a marriage because that's a sacred, solemn set of promises. But ordinarily, one should not make oaths because you, it's not in your power to perform on every oath. That, that Got that? Don't you like somebody who is as good as their word? Somebody who says, I'm coming over at 3, and they show up at 3, and somebody says, uh, uh, let me help you, and they come and help you, instead of the person who says, well, I might have some free time uh, next Saturday, and if I do, uh, maybe I might come over perhaps. <laughs> help you move. <laughs> Yeah, maybe. Okay, that's that's pretty straightforward. That, that God wants people who have integrity, who uh, uh, and, and the thing about taking oaths is it may not be in your power to perform the oath to keep the promise. You may not be able to do that. So don't. And particularly if you swear by God, people who I swear to God that I'm going to do such and such. Well, then you're invoking God. You're trying to get God to do your dirty work for you, and He won't. So you, that's not a good idea. Or I swear on a stack of Bibles that. <laughs> well, uh, see, just, just don't do that. Just, just. God repents. God. No. No. He delays it and he, he, he uh, grants uh, temporary delays because he's merciful. But he doesn't change. God can't change any. So these are the best. Uh, uh, one of the commentators says these two monosyllabic uh, words are the most useful words that you can ever. Yes and no are the best words to have for most any situation. Aren't there some groups that uh, will not take an oath in, in court where they say, do you swear to tell the truth and so forth? Yeah. In the courtrooms, it uh, used to be that you'd swear on, uh, in the name of God or you'd swear on a Bible, and some people object to that, and they don't want God referenced, uh, which is, the courts will recognize that, that if you don't want to swear on the Bible, swear on the Koran or some other standard, that's generally acceptable. Well, we need to go move on here, uh, to, because we've got this absolutely awesome little section at the close here that's really, really good. Is any among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him, sing, let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with the oil in, in, oil 
in the name of the Lord, and the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now, the context here is more about the situations in which we are helpless and weak and tired and defeated and run down and where the prayer of others can boost us up and restore us and put us into a state of healing, put us into a healthier situation. That's more the idea than the miraculous healing of cancer. Now, God does occasionally heal people of cancer, but we're we're not in the sideshow circuits here of having healing meetings based on this verse here, okay? Uh uh, are you having a really rough time in your life? Get some friends to come over and have them pray. So, oh, that's good. The word sick uh, is the word, I think, helpless. Is the, John? Oh, there's two different words. There's a word sick in uh, uh, 13 and another word in 15. They're different. Suffering is the word kako. Pothea, help, helpless. Okay, okay. Then the word in 15 is, I can't even read my, camnanti. Exhausted, fatigued, run down, right? Verse 15. Weary. Okay, uh, and, and I use W. E. Vine, and Vine says that the word sick in verse 15 has to do with being exhausted, fatigued, uh, run down, um, which sort of fits. The prayer of faith will save the exhausted, run down, weakened, and weary Christian, and the Lord will raise him up, will restore. That's sort of okay, isn't it? In verse 13, if anyone among you is suffering... Let him pray. Is any cheerful? Let him sing psalms. It's very easy to get uh, discouraged and depressed if you are in pain or in emotional distress, is it not? Would prayer perhaps encourage you? Somebody, uh, oftentimes somebody depressed comes over to my house and I will assign them some psalms. I'll say, okay, this week I want you to read through the psalms and stop when you find one that fits and pray that psalm. That usually is helpful. And pray with them. So, uh, now what about this uh, calling the elders of the church and anointing them with oil? There's a couple of possibilities there. Do you run to the elders all every time you get sick and ask for this? No. Do our church elders sometimes go to sick people and anoint them with oil and pray over them? Yes, indeed, they do. Uh, you obviously, uh, with uh, 15, 12, 15 elders and hundreds of people, you, they, they can't do that all the time. What's the usual idea here of having the elders pray over you and then this symbolic anointing with olive oil? What, what, what situations would, be, would that be especially appropriate? Uh, a, a person who's dying. Now we get, to, of course, the, the Roman Catholic Church took this verse and turned it into the uh, last rite. So what do you call it? The, uh, the extreme unction. Now, and that came along in about 850 A.D., well after James wrote this. And the Catholic Church did not turn that into a healing prayer, but into a prayer so you could die better. 
<laughs> and that's not James's purpose here. The prayer here is for you to recover, not die. <laughs> so we don't, if somebody's absolutely for sure going to die, well, you can pray they'd have a happy home going. But the general idea is you generally, you pray in order that they get better. Yeah. So just Yes, there's no reason not to apply this literally and to pray to God. Are there situations in which you are sick and it has some connection with sin in your life? Yeah. And if the sin is dealt with, will you get better? Yep. And might it be a good idea to have the elders or some friends pray over you if that's the case? You got addicted to too much prescription medicine say, for example, and it's an addiction now, and it's, therefore we'd say it was a sin, and if somebody came and prayed over that, and the power of the addiction was broken, and you got off these ODing on the meds, and you got well, that would be, there, there the help is not just the healing, it's to put you in a state of mind which is healthier, that, okay, so this is a, more or less about good health, more than it is God does miraculously, suddenly heal. I've seen it half a dozen times in my life, just amazingly. The oil is a symbol of the Holy Spirit here, and that's what we're invoking, the healing of the Holy Spirit. Oil is medicinal, too. You know, in the ancient world, to rub with olive oil, to uh, wounds, uh, burns, scrapes, olive oil is the standard wonderful medication in the ancient world. All right. Uh, people get, uh, Christians get discouraged, defeated, burned out, exhausted, uh, depressed. Uh, will prayer help fix that, particularly the prayer of several other people. Yes, it generally will. Will prayer by others put you back into a better frame of mind? Yes, it usually will. Will it get you over your snit or your depression? Yes, it generally will. If you're in a good, strong, current relationship with God, are you likelier to be healthy? Yeah, you are. Just They kind of go together. Uh, verse 16 says, Confess your trespasses one to another and pray for one another that you may be Healed. You may be put into a state of healing. Uh, now, th- th- this is abused. The Catholic Church, of course, insists that you go into a priest and confess all of your sins on a regular basis to this priest who goes home with a huge load of sins in his computer memory bank at the end of the day. must drag him down something fiercely. Uh, James is not talking about airing all your dirty laundry to everybody else and he's talking about sharing your faults shortcomings trespasses with your brothers and sisters faults shortcomings trespasses if you've got major huge issues in your life go to a counselor go to a pastor go to a mature christian something that's really heavy duty 
Other people might not be able to handle what you're going through. Don't bog them, don't overload them, freak them out. So the advice here is mostly with your trespasses, your your little uh, blunders. Oh, I'm really sorry. I said something abrupt to you the other day, and I think I it was. Uh, would you forgive me? I I didn't intend to be harsh like that. That would be a trespass. And you go ask the person's forgiveness. And you get forgiveness within the circle of people that you've hurt, offended, wronged. You don't go over the all of creation. Okay? Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another. Here's where accountability groups are really great. Really, really good to have a small home group, to have a couple of friends that you can go talk to about things. I... uh, I know of probably I could name two dozen men in this area who have a, a porn recovery accountability group because they got hooked on Internet porn or Internet porn is easy for them to get into at work. And it began to ruin their marriage and they needed help. So they got some got in a group where other guys can pray with them. Well, that's a specialty area. It's like Alcoholics Anonymous is AA helpful to people recovering from Alcohol abuse. Yes, it is. Accountability groups. Uh, we do not. We tend to not know our own faults and shortcomings. We don't tend to know when we're grousy and sharp and critical and cynical. And a good friend will help you with that. And you, in turn, can help the other person. And you can pray for each other. Small groups doesn't happen in a big group like this. Okay. Now we've got this absolutely wonderful second part of verse 16. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man releases much power, energizes much. The effective, fervent, persevering, ongoing prayer of a righteous man avails much. Now here the word righteous man is in contrast with the other term that James uses, double-minded. The double-minded man must not think that he will receive anything from the Lord. The double-minded man is one foot in the church and one foot in the world and not fully committed. And he can't expect to get anything from the Lord. But the righteous person who's fully committed to the Lord, when he prays fervently and persistently, sets loose the power of God. This is an awesome little little, uh, conclusion here. And then he takes us to Elijah. And he says, Elijah was a man just like you, a man of like nature with us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Now, why did he pray? Why did Elijah pray that the rain would stop? The annual winter rains in northern Israel stopped for three and a half years, producing a terrible drought. How come this one man, Elijah, did that? Well, who was the king? Ahab. With this wonderful wife, this beautiful, attractive wife from Sidon named Jezebel, who went around uh, killing the prophets and castrating all the young men. And and she was a real nasty, nasty woman. And uh, Ahab was intractable. So what did Elijah do? He shut off the rain until he got Ahab softened up enough. And then Ahab, he could talk to Ahab and arrange this little meeting, the contest between the prophets of God and the prophets of Baal. And who won? Elijah won. Our side won. And all the prophets of Baal got killed. And uh, Jezebel was furious, of course, and so on. And then Elijah prayed that the rain would start up again. And sure enough, 
he and his servant waited up on the cloudless sky at Mount Carmel and waited and waited and waited and thought, uh-oh, this time for God, God's forgotten, it's not going to rain. Then they saw this little cloud appear and the little cloud grew into a big cloud and pretty soon it was pouring rain and the whole land had relief from a famine. And that's a big deal in northern Israel to have no rain for three and a half years. Now, James wants you to realize that you have just as much power with God as Elijah did. You can pray the same sort of great big heavy duty prayers that Elijah did and, and you can, you can pray, uh, persistently big giant prayers and they carry a lot of weight with God. And of course you want to pray intelligently. You don't want to pray necessarily for a big earthquake tomorrow. Uh, maybe. I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I'm not sure that would be God's will and I wouldn't want to make a mistake on that. Not that God would take my prayer into account, but, but Elijah was pretty clear to Elijah what he ought to pray for. Can, can you think of things that you could pray for that are important and persevere? The fervent, effectual prayer of a righteous man releases much power. It, it's, uh, uh, what does the Greek also say there? It also says, um, he prayed in prayer. Yes, you're all righteous. You're all just as righteous as Elijah. Every one of you has the same ground. You have the same standing as Elijah that he's not in a special holier class. That's the idea. Somebody back. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Georgia. There's a huge drought in the South now, and it's very serious in Georgia. And there's a little bit of a flurry of should we pray for rain, but the trouble is a lot of people don't want to pray to God uh, for rain. They just assume not. Invoke the name of God in a political office. (laughs) This is ridiculous, of course. Who owns the earth and who owns Georgia and who owns the planet? Oh, Elijah's just like us because no sooner did he have this great victory over the prophets of Baal than he started worrying about Jezebel. And he ran, and he ran all the way down to Mount Sinai, terrified that Jezebel was going to hunt him down uh, when he just destroyed uh, most of her resources. And then uh, uh, he wanted God to speak to him, and God came not in the whirlwind and not in the fire, but in the still small voice. And God took care of him while he was fleeing by having the ravens feed him. And here is this weak, defeated uh, man of God after this overwhelming victory. Well, it's, it's like you and me, isn't it? So, so, so it's, it's really good that he puts Elijah in here as an example. Now, you guys go home and pray fervently, persistently. Don't give up because prayer is an enormously powerful resource for changing things. That's the... Idea here in James. James was a called old knobby knees because he would go to the temple in Jerusalem on his knees and pray by the hour until his knees got calluses, according to Josephus. Brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. 
Isn't that great advice? Do you know Christians who are straying away from their once strong commitment to the Lord? Yep, do we all. Young Christians do. Like young Christians need a lot of sheep herding. They're uh, stray real easy into uh, unusual ideas and crazy doctrines. Do older Christians stray? Yes. Get discouraged. Give up. Quit. And he says, you can even save somebody's life from dying early because they've gotten so far away from the mainstream of Christian faith. So that's his last warning to us is watch out for each other. Uh, go after those Christians that, that, that seem to be get, have lost their fervor and their faith. See if you can encourage them and restore them and help them and answer their questions. And uh, we're a family together. Take care of each other closer to each other in the body of Christ than we ever are to our natural families, in almost all cases. Putrid pathos. Good. Thank you. Does James have a heart of compassion for his people? Yes, he does. Is he a, a, a caring, loving pastor over his flock? Yes, he certainly is. is. Does he have all the fire of an Old Testament prophet? Yes, he does. Uh, remember that uh, at least two dozen references in here that James uses can be found also in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and uh, he, I, he must have been just an incredible man, early pastor, and put to death because he was more righteous than the Pharisees were, in their opinion. They threw him off the temple, pillar of the temple, and he fell all the way to the bottom, broke bones, but didn't die so they had to get out and stone him to death. And he said, Father, do not hold this up against them. And died and went to heaven. Father, thank you for uh, the, the letter of James. Thanks for this pastor. Uh, what an exciting man. What an incredible man he is and was. And how much it will be uh, great to look forward to the day that we see him. Father, thank you for these practical lessons about enduring hardship and suffering and misery and discouragement and depression and the, all of the things that, that drag us down all the time. Thank you that prayer is the anecdote, that, that prayer for one another is healing and redemptive and, and, and restorative. Thank you that, that you give us here clear guidance about the power of our prayer, clear clear advice on how to pray fervently, how to hang in there and tough it out. Also, that our hope is in heaven, not in this present world. And help us not to cling to material possessions and and not to live the way the world lives uh, because the future of the world is not very bright apart from you. Thank you for the Lord Jesus, uh, his utter faithfulness to us. Uh, He is the judge and uh, the God of all. And we pray in his name. Amen.